This is Visa V, a podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Visa V features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon Sorbonne, and Ecole Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face to face with, or as we say in French, vis a vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. On May 31st, 2023, the Columbia Center for Oral History Research and the Obama Foundation released 17 interviews related to climate change and the Obama presidency. These interviews form part of an ambitious project, the Obama Presidency Oral History. This unique repository will include interviews with 400 people and generate an archive containing 1,200 hours of audio and video recordings. Interviewees include cabinet members, among them Stephen Chu, Energy Secretary from 2009 to 2013, policymakers, as well as intellectuals, artists, journalists, and ordinary citizens. This oral history will provide invaluable insights into the decisions, actions, and impacts of this historic presidency. To introduce us to this unique oral archive, Vis-a-Vis is honored to welcome Professor Peter Bierman, who spearheaded this project as Director of Columbia's Interdisciplinary Center for Innovative Theories and Empirics, or INSIGHT, which is the home of the Obama Presidency Oral History. Professor Bierman is Cole Professor of Social Science at Columbia University. He co-designed the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health and is a specialist in network analysis and historical sociology. He is the author of numerous books, including Dorman, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2005, and with Adam Reich of Working for Respect, Community and Conflict at Walmart, published by Columbia University Press in 2018. Professor Bierman, welcome to Vis-a-Vis. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. Great. We're really pleased to have you uh, with us. So let me start by asking you about uh, some of the, the, the 17 interviews that were released on May 31st. One of them features someone called Joe Del Bosque, who is a farmer in the San Joaquin Valley in California. And um, so he wrote to President Obama on Twitter about the dry crisis that he and other farmers in the region were facing. And he was rewarded with the president's visit to his farm. What are his voice and other voices uh, from ordinary Americans teaching us about the Obama years? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is, is maybe complicated. Let me step back and say that, that the archive has 470 people were interviewed. All of the people who would be normally found in an oral history, a presidential oral history, the cabinet members, the chiefs of staff, heads of major agencies like the CIA and so on. Uh, so many of the people that we interviewed, of course, are the, the leading figures within the Obama administration, and many of them are, are now important players in the Biden administration or rising stars. And we also interviewed roughly 100 um, individuals who are, who are 
in civil society in important roles as activists, had the leaders of Black Lives Matter, the leaders of the Fight for 15, so labor organizers, the, the, the head of the AFL-CIO, university presidents, as well as, as well as congressmen, congresswomen, both Republican and Democratic, and individuals who play a really, have played a really important role in shaping the cultural environment of those eight years from 2008 to 2016, which um, Obama was president. And in addition to them, as you say, we, we also interviewed 100 individuals who, who, you know, for lack of a better word, we think of as ordinary, ordinary people. Um, they're not just Americans. They're all o- from all true. over the world. Uh, there's a farmer in, in Ghana, a victim of, uh, of a drone strike in Syria. And, of course, individuals in the United States who had some contact with Obama or with the administration. Um, and Joe Del Bosque is one of those people. And in this initial tranche of, of interviews that we released to celebrate the completion of the interview phase of the study and to start the process of, of familiarizing the larger public with what is in this archive, which is quite unusual. We chose that topic, the environment and climate, because one, Obama did try to make an intervention there. Um, it, was, it was an important cornerstone of his administration. It wasn't a successful cornerstone, but it was an important one. And then I think because this is a Columbia University project, and Columbia University is the first university in the country to build a climate school, so climate seemed like a really important topic for us, for Columbia, for this moment, and also to illustrate features of the archive that, that, that we wanted to highlight. And one of those features, I think, is that there's not a single topic domain, whether it's climate or justice or health or the reset of the Asian, uh, Asian rebalance or the opening of Cuba or the endless prosecution of endless wars in the Middle East or Arab Spring. There's not a single topic of the 40 or 50 major policy domains that we cover in this study that doesn't have the multiplicity of standpoints. Um, And um, one of the key features of this project was to make sure that that was true and that you could always look at and ask, how is the language, the connection, the understanding of of individuals who are differentially situated with respect to a topic as as people who experience climate change, the ordinary people, as people who are devoted to trying to stop it, the activists, and also, of course, administration figures who are dealing with climate change in the context of a bunch of other issues that are simultaneous. Um, They don't have the luxury of just thinking about climate. so the, the release of the 17 transcripts on May 31st on the topic of climate, um, in which Joe Del Bosque is one of the ordinary citizens, in this case an ordinary American, um, was designed to be metonymic of the project as a whole. What we can do for climate, we can do for everywhere. So that's the setup of the project that we wanted to be able to demonstrate with this topic and... Um, the thing that's interesting, you know, when you go into an oral history project, you don't know what people are going to say. Right. We thought a lot, and I'm really happy to talk about how we thought about how to pick people. 
Um, but we, we thought a lot about who might have a, an important story to tell at all of the levels, at all of these different standpoints. But with respect to, to ordinary people like Joe DeBosk, one of the things that we wanted to be sure of is that we weren't just picking some random person, that there was an organic connection to the presidency in some manner. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, President Obama goes to the farm, um, speaks to him, um, and encounters him. Uh, and Joe Del Bosque has an important story to tell. Um, we knew that from the research we'd done on him. That story, as you say, is a story of drought. This is a farmer who is coming out of the out of California in the worst years of the drought, where um, his livelihood, the livelihood of the other farmers around, and the livelihood of, of people who work on those farms um, was really up up in question. And of course, the issue of water is a complicated issue because there's water that could be going to farms, but there's water that, that needs to or does get diverted to support the water requirements of humans in large cities like Los Angeles and so on. And so the, the problem of water as a fundamental element is central to, to uh, this story, but you know, it's actually a, it's a very important topic. So we, we thought a lot about who the ordinary citizens were who could tell us something about, about what climate was like, climate or energy policy broadly. And, and I think what's interesting about the Del Bosque interview is really what happened, which is that President Obama goes to the farm for a photo op. I mean, this is presidents go places to be photographed at places to evidence concern for a problem or to use it as a standpoint to announce a new policy or at least a new desire. And, and President Obama travels to uh, this farm and uses the opportunity to talk very broadly about climate change. But in the interview, something really powerful emerges, which is that there's an asymmetry in understanding between Joe Del Bosque and President Obama. Obama has gone to make a, a really major climate address. And we all know at some level that climate change is implicated in drought. They're related. Of course. But climate change is not Joe Del Bosque's problem. He cares <laughs> about water. And water, that's about drought. That's drought and that's water, but it's also water policy. It's like who gets the water? how much is diverted, and so on. And so one of the interesting things about having an archive that allows you to see the relationship between those who make decisions and think broadly about, about political things like climate change and those who experience the outcomes of such policies and decisions is the possibility for asymmetry. And one of the interesting things that one, I think, will be able to really look at in a study like this is in what areas were, was the Obama administration aligned with the ways in which ordinary people understood the world and what areas in which they were not aligned? And did that alignment increase or decrease over time? Um, these are really, I think, important questions that the whole archive uh, will be able to answer. So we didn't know that Joe Del Bosque, you know, wanted to talk about water per se or, or that he, you know, couldn't quite understand, like, why did this guy come and talk about climate change? He doesn't, he doesn't get me. 
I got drought. He's talking about something else. Right. And I'd like to perhaps push you a little bit on the the selection process, which you've mentioned as well. How do you how did you go about um, achieving the right kind of balance in order to avoid turning this project into an agiographic enterprise? I mean, you've you've avoided that danger. And in a way, you know, it's interesting to see that there is quite a bit of balance. On the one hand, you have people like Melanie Banky in one of the, the 17 interviews. She's a, an environmental activist. Uh, she also met with President Obama when he visited Alaska, I believe in 2009. And she was she had a very favorable and positive impression, uh, partly because of the executive order that President Obama uh, signed on the North Bering Sea Climate Resilience Area, which which helped uh, native communities uh, in, in Alaska. And then on the other hand, you have another activist, uh, Bill McKibben, who's, you know, well-known activist, founder of 350.org, who's more critical, um, particularly on the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, he explains how he was arrested and put in jail for protesting the extension of the, the Keystone uh, pipeline. So give us some insights perhaps about this, this selection process of interviewees and what was your thinking process when you were doing this with your team, you know, making sure that you achieved the right kind of balance? Yeah, yeah. So the process of choosing people was, you know, first about choosing areas. You know, we, we really wanted to make sure that we covered important areas that captured the, the period from 2008 to 2016. So although this is the Obama presidency oral history, and it is a oral history of the presidency, it's a, it's a specific one in which the presidency is very broadly conceived of as a set of flows or interactions between those with power and those who don't have power, how those with power influence the lives of those who don't have power and vice versa, how those without power influence the direction of policy and decisions, if they can. And so as we were thinking about, about specific areas, we would write up an area, uh, we'd write up a very detailed historical reconstruction of, say, climate change and the environment, we would identify through that all of the activists who were engaged in the issue. Bill McKibben is one, but there are others. Um, and then would come the political figures who were responsible for elements of either energy policy or climate change, like Stephen Chu, um, Secretary of Energy. And from the historical reconstruction, we would then start to think about who whose voice needed to be there to complement the stories that were already there. Um, and so in the environment space, for example, you're right, we have, we have, a, we have a lot of different kinds of activists. We have Bill McKibben, um, we have Bonnicky. You know, we also have a farmer um, who's an ordinary citizen, Art Tanderup, whose land happens to border the Keystone Pipeline. And he, this is a guy who doesn't care at all about, you know, the Keystone Pipeline per se or the environment. Like, what he cares about is being a good steward for his land and his neighbor's land. And so the big highfalutin issues around Keystone are not salient to him. What's salient is the purity of the land. But he hooks up um, with a group of other Nebraskans, activists who call themselves the Cowboys and Indians. So they're very self-conscious about leaning into the stereotypes. They call themselves the Cowboys and Indians. And Art Tandrup 
devote one of his crop, uh, one of his fields, to the execution of the world's largest crop art. So from the airplane, you can see an art exhibit drawn in the wheat that celebrates unity, um, unity of all Nebraskans against this invasion. So this is an ordinary person who comes to be constituted as an activist and is later arrested in Washington protesting Keystone. So the process of choosing people was to make sure, as you say, that we had a multiplicity of voices and we always wanted to be sure that we had the critics' voices because um, an oral history of, of the Obama presidency that has no critics has no value. That presidency is defined by that set of criticisms. It wasn't easy. A lot of people who are highly critical of President Obama just didn't want to participate. But some did, you know. Uh, Paul mm. Ryan did. Right. Some did. And, um, you know, I think it's to their credit that they were willing to um, go on the record in support of their ideas. Right. Uh, and you just mentioned Paul Ryan. Uh, is there a schedule in place for the release of the rest of the archive? I mean, uh, it seems also that this could be a, a real treasure trove for journalists and people covering um, politics and covering contemporary present issues as well. Yeah, it is such a treasure trove. And, and obviously that influences some of our thinking about release, which we're doing right now. Um, there will be, I'm almost certain, five or six more events like the event that we did in May going over the next year and a half through and past the next election season. And I think that they're going to cover important topics. Um, obviously, we're coming up to the 15th anniversary of the recovery um, ACA is another really important topic that would be hard to imagine leaving on the table. An area of some achievement, mixed of course, but some achievement within the Obama administration on lesbian and gay rights, um, I think is going to be really important. And we have some unusually rich collections as well that I think we'll, we'll hope to get out as well. There's for the first time ever a complete set of 30 interviews, more than 30 interviews of people who worked in the East Wing, including Mrs. Obama. And so for the first time ever, there will be material that reveals, oh, what is this important office of the presidency doing? Making contact with people, the very variety of programs that she was involved in, and also Jill Biden. Um, and we have an unusually rich collection in um, the indigenous experience in the United States. So of all of the variety of different topics, both foreign and domestic, um, I would think we'll, we, there will be more releases. The whole is too large to experience fully. Um, there's a sort of an analogy, you know, to you know, use a French example to Chartres. You know, like it's just such an amazing building that, that you can't apprehend the whole without... The cathedral. Yeah, yes, without, the, the, without the Chartres walking cathedral. through it. And the, right. But you walk through it, you know, and, and it, there's a path, and the path is the, the Stations of Christ, and it's been designed that way, so that as you walk through, you see something else. Right. So there are signposts also in the in the Obama archives that will orient the, yeah. um, you know, people visiting it. I mean, which brings me to the question, you know, who is the archive for? I mean, obviously, the obvious answer is, you know, 
it's for researchers and academics and students and journalists. But you were mentioning, uh, you know, ordinary citizens, not just Americans, but ordinary citizens generally. What are the pathways for them to get to the archive? Yeah. Um, are you are you thinking about the promotion of the archive also to the general public? And and what tools are you using in order to do that? So, yeah, the, the ideal user in my mind is an eight-year-old or a 13-year-old who is doing a school assignment um, and discovers the possibility of action, you know, like actually right. discovers something. Um, the archive is going to be, of course, resident for scholars inside an a, 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 a organization like Columbia University in the Rare Books Room. And it's resident on a web page as well. And it will be used to further exhibits in the Chicago um, Museum that's being developed by the Obama Foundation. What it also will be doing is um, making oral history accessible to teachers, ordinary people, students, and others, both domestic in the United States and globally. And um, we are building quite a remarkable web page that will allow you to search for a term, an idea, uh, listen to a piece of a transcript, see the connections of that piece of that transcript to all the other transcripts that are related to it, travel through all of the um, content of the archive as a gigantic vocabulary that um, allows you to say, oh, I'm interested in um, Flint, Michigan, and suddenly you know, connect to all of the interviews that happened in Flint, but also all of the material on inequality that drives public health outcomes and so on. So a kind of giant cloud that will enable you to create connections yeah. between different interviews based on themes, keywords. Um, in fact, you'll right. be able to see this cloud and kind of hover over it and, and it'll light up and say, oh, that that's public health. And then you can go into it and you'll say, oh, that's Ebola. And then you'll see that, you know, something interesting, for example, is that we think about Ebola as, you know, that's a disease. So it's a public health problem. But administration figures, you know, thought about Ebola like, okay, it's a disease. But what it also is, is an immigration issue. Something that wouldn't come to the ordinary individual is just to suddenly realize that, you know, when you're thinking about a, a disease that's over there and it might travel here, actually that's all about immigration. So it's all about borders. And so this um, visualization that this CNSPO team is working on with us and, and, and uh, everyone else will allow individuals to explore as if they were walking through a maze, um, turning here and saying, oh, what's in this room? And I'm hoping that that explorative feature will be the feature that makes the archive accessible to teachers, their students, and people who just, you know, want to see, say, a map. There'll be a map of the world, and, and there may be someone from Slovenia, and of course the first thing they're going to do is say, well, is there anybody from Slovenia here? And boom, they'll, they can click on the country and see if there is, and if there is, they can listen to that interview. Some of the interviewees highlight some of the successes 
uh, of the presidency. You also mentioned some setbacks. One of the failures that you mentioned was the American Clean uh, Energy and Security Act, which uh, the Senate failed to pass. As the world is facing these ever-increasing climate-related risks, and we're aware of you know hurricanes and heat waves and floods, I'm wondering how can these political challenges, as they are documented in uh, this oral history, help today's policymakers to act more decisively? And I'm thinking more particularly about uh, the issue of climate change. I think policymakers know exactly what they're doing. They sacrifice long-term interest for short-term gain in many cases, and they, they're well aware of the idiosyncratic levers of power that they can use to block important legislation or to try to move it forward. I think the lesson is going to be more eye-opening for ordinary people who, you know, there's a complicated process by which, you know, a piece of legislation becomes a law. And then there's like a lot of process by which something becomes a piece of legislation. And, And I think there's a lot of material to trying to understand how complicated it is to just move the needle forward um, a little bit. There are some days in the life of any president, and that's certainly true for President Obama, you know, that that there's 76 different things that are enormously important that have to get dealt with. And all of those have an army of people, you know, responsible for them. And it's like going to decide to get a beer at the bar, and you get up and everybody in the bar went at the exact same time. Well... This makes governing hard. The archive is going to reveal interesting moments in which, um, you know, very deep and consequential compromises and decisions were made. And some of that is not not necessarily known yet. You know, some of of these accounts aren't necessarily um, the, the canonical account. You know, things, things that seem trivial at one time become enormously consequential a, a decade later. Um, the questions that we're going to be interested in now are, are certainly different than those that are going to be, we're going to be interested in after the 2024 election, whoever wins. So, right. you know, I think that part of the goal of this project was to build an archive that had enough multiplicity of standpoints to, to answer the questions that we can't ask now because we don't know what they are. We ask the questions that we could ask. Um, right. But by right. the design was the design of making it so fulsome, so expansive of the notion of a presidency, we hope to be able to anticipate, just by chance, some of the questions of the future. Right. Right. This has been a a fascinating discussion. I'm really grateful to you, um, Professor Bierman. Thank you for your insights about the Obama Oral History Archive itself, how it was developed, and also for your insights about, um, you know, how it may be used uh, in the future. I'd like to remind our listeners that the Obama Oral History can be found uh, on the following website, obamaoralhistory.columbia.edu. There are 17 interviews right there on the archive at the moment, but there will be more in, in the coming months and in the coming years. Um, Professor Beamerin, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Vis-a-vis is brought to you by the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris en Panthéon Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and Ecole Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter Hart and Georgia O'Neill, and I'm Emmanuel Catan. Special thanks to Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Program and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the U.S. and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter X, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.